from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. This is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. And things change. And one of the changes that is happening in my life is that I'm going to be moving to the other end of the continent. Uh, beginning January 1, I will become the minister uh, at Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Beaverton is uh, part of the Portland, Oregon metro. And so I start there uh, January, 5th, uh, January of 2015 after serving nine and a half years at First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. And um, so many people have been asking me, well, what about the radio program? What's going to happen to Religion for Life? Are you going to be able to keep it going? And the answer is yes, we are going to keep Religion for Life going. Um, the trick now is going to Portland and, and uh, working out the logistics of it, uh, whether it be a radio station there, which I hope so. If you've got radio connections in Portlandia, uh, let me know. Um, or I just, you know, you know, make it kind of a, a quality home production. You can do those things these days. But either way, uh, we are going to be carrying Religion for Life uh, into the future. And so for the next couple of months, we'll probably have some encore presentations, some of the best hits of uh, Religion for Life. And then beginning March, beginning in March 2015, that's my goal, uh, to have a new programming coming straight out of the City of Roses in Portland, Oregon. It is sad to leave East Tennessee. Uh, my heart is here. I didn't know anything about Tennessee when I moved here. I had heard of Nashville, but had never been. And uh, But now I've fallen in love uh, with the people and the place. And so it is difficult to leave. Uh, and I've made so many friends here and so many wonderful connections. Uh, my church wants to host a reception for, for you, for everyone, uh, on the 21st of December from noon to 3 at the church, First Presbyterian Church, Elizabethton, 119 West F Street. And so it's a reception, uh, an open chance to... Uh, to uh, say goodbye. So I uh, hope you can join me uh, for that on the 21st of December, noon to three at First Pres, Elizabethton, 119 West F Street. Now on to my exciting guest, Amy Jill Levine is a professor at Vanderbilt University, and she is a professor of New Testament, the editor of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, and the author of a brand new book called Short Stories by Jesus, the Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. Welcome, Professor Levine, to Religion for Life. Delighted to be with you. Tell me a little bit about Short Stories by Jesus. I love the title. How did uh, this book come to be? <laughs> uh, I've been reading parables for, I don't know, 30 years or so, and I found them fascinating. And every time I would hear them preached, because I'm in churches pretty much every Sunday and every Wednesday, uh, or read about them in sermon journals or academic studies, I kept thinking, that can't possibly be what Jesus' first century audience would have thought those parables meant. Uh, so I started to do some history. And what I think I've come up with is not so much new readings, but actually very, very old readings that we've lost touch with. And why have we lost touch with these readings? Uh, primarily because we don't think like first century Jews, <laughs> and uh -huh. we've lost Jesus' own historical context. Um, it doesn't mean that the readings we've had over the past 2,000 years are necessarily wrong. Uh, I do think that, that everybody should read the text in his or her own way so that the text will always have meaning. But I think we've lost that, that original historical connection. 
And, and some of that um, is because of the, the Christian overlay, isn't it? Is it the, the theologizing regarding, Jews, uh, regarding Jesus? Certainly some of it is, as if everything in the parables has to point to Jesus, or it has to point to some sense of how we get saved uh, or how we get into heaven. But I do think the parables, as parables, a genre that was already known to Jesus' Jewish audience, they were not designed primarily to tell people how to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. They were designed to tell people how to get along on earth uh, with each other, uh, with the government, uh, with the family, uh, with a sense of, of personal self and just how we function in the world. And uh, you come to the parables as a scholar and, and also as uh, a Jewish person, so and, and a New Testament uh, scholar who's also Jewish, which is somewhat unique in the f- field of study, isn't it? Well, <laughs> there are actually quite a number of us. Uh-huh. Um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I was the co-editor of something called the Jewish Annotated New Testament, uh, which brought mm. together 51 separate Jewish scholars to do a full New Testament annotation, as well as about 30 back essays on things like, you know, who were the Pharisees and what was the temple like and how do we understand Jewish family life? So there are a number of Jews who are interested in early Christianity, and why not? Because Jesus and all his followers originally were all Jewish. Right. And so uh, what's happened, and that's what the custom I wanted to get to within the New Testament itself, um, because sometimes when, when you read the gospel, say, well, for example, the gospel of John, uh, the, the Jews are, are, are listed as a name and, and as sort of the enemy of Jesus. How, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, As the stories of Jesus continued to be told in a church which was becoming increasingly non-Jewish, increasingly Gentile, uh, Jesus' words get recontextualized. Uh, And this is just one of those those affects of history. The early followers of Jesus, to a great extent, could not figure out why their Jewish brothers and sisters were not signing on to the program. Uh, For some of them, uh, they thought that the Jews were being generally misled by their leaders, Uh, For others, they thought that this was something that God had arranged in order for the movement to go out to the Gentile world. And we have hints of that in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And for some of them, it was because uh, they must be children of the devil and they were never fated to understand it. So the Jewish no to Jesus required a response from the church, and sometimes the response was not overly gracious. You know, I did a program uh, recently, and, and one of my guests uh, talked about the gospel writing and, and mentioning that, of course, that Jesus, Jesus was Jewish and his earlier followers were Jewish, and, and even the gospel writers were Jewish. I, I got a recall from somebody who said that I needed to correct my guest and, and go on the air and make a correction uh, because the Jews uh, really were, uh, even the Romans killed Jesus, but the Jews were really responsible. And I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, should I have corrected my guest on this? Uh, I would start with the correction of the gospel writers. Um, I don't think all the gospel writers were Jewish. I certainly don't think Luke was. Okay. Um, Mark, uh, that's really up in the air. Uh, could go either way on Mark. Um, the fact is we don't know who wrote the gospels because they come to us originally anonymously. The names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were added on later. And we don't know the audience that each gospel writer addressed. Uh, It's a dirty little secret in New Testament studies that we determine the author and the audience on the basis of internal contents and then interpret the text in light of what we've just determined. And that's that's what's known as a circular argument. Um, Did the Jews kill Jesus? The New Testament actually says that they did. You have 
strong hints of that in the Gospel of John. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul actually talks about the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. However, that would be like saying the Americans killed Martin Luther King Jr. or the Americans killed John F. Kennedy. Mm. To blame an entire group, and, and worse, to blame an entire group over all time and space for uh, an execution that took place in a political context uh, with very specific actors. is I think that's bad theology, and it's certainly bad history. And the New Testament itself, of course, as you mentioned earlier, is really reflecting really a later division uh, within the uh, earliest communities, isn't it? It's reflecting in part a later division, and in part it's reflecting very, very heightened internal rhetoric. Um, we have seen, uh, even here in the United States, when churches split, when churches schism, uh, the enormously hateful language that's involved from one group to the other. Uh, heightened rhetoric was par for the course in the first century. People used all sorts of nasty comments about each other. And we need to be able to locate the New Testament's rhetoric in its own historical context. And more, we need to be careful not to repeat it. Well, let's looking at the parables in themselves. Um, for example, the, the many of the parables are found in the Gospel of Luke. And as you write in your book several times, you mention how Luke kind of frames them or shapes them to fit uh, uh, his or her own audience's needs. Um, yeah, exactly so. Um, by the time the parables hit the Gospels, they've already been uh, processed for us. They've already gone through at least one level of church-based interpretation. I don't think Jesus just told the parables once. He's got these great stories, and I think he's going to use them as he goes from place to place to place. So as soon as the gospel writers stick them in one particular context, they've already been tamed to some extent. Um, And Luke sometimes, I think, tries to figure out what the parables mean and thus tries to take away their challenge by giving us a a very uh, domestic message. So in the wonderful parable of the widow and the judge, where this woman actually threatens to give the judge a black eye, Luke says, that's really just about praying constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, Luke tells us that the parables of what we normally call the lost sheep and the lost coin are actually about repenting and forgiving. But first century Jews aren't going to think that because, you know, sheep don't repent. And when Luke suggests that the shepherd who goes after the sheep and the woman who searches for her coin represent God, again, that's Luke's interpretation. And for Luke, that's a fine interpretation, but first century Jews aren't thinking that. Why? Because the fellow lost the sheep and the woman lost the coin, and God never loses us. So that uh, leads us to to wonder, sometimes when we look at parables, maybe an, an immediate thing is to say, well, the... The, the shepherd is God, and the sheep is the lost soul, to, to allegorize it. But that isn't necessarily how Jesus might have meant them when he told them. I don't think so. Um, and again, it doesn't mean that the allegories are bad readings. Readings mm-hmm. of texts are going to change over, the, over time inevitably. Uh, but that takes away any sort of challenge for the parable. If the parable simply tells us that God loves us and cares for us, we don't need a parable to tell us that. Parables as genre— uh, we're designed to challenge, we're designed to provoke, sometimes we're designed to indict. And Jews knew that because there were parables in the scriptures of Israel and there were parables in rabbinic sources. So if we hear a parable and think, oh, isn't that nice or isn't that special or doesn't this make me feel good? That's a genre miscue. Hmm. 
Yeah. Now, uh, the, the, the brother's story, think about, uh, we often, uh, the way we even title the parables, as you point out, the prodigal son, well, that, uh, that shapes how we're even going to read the parable in the first place. But the, 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 the story is the man had two sons and, uh, and they're brothers, right? And so there's a whole history of brothers uh, in the Hebrew scriptures that this parable uh, points to in a sense, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, as soon as Jesus begins a story by saying there was a man who had two sons, every single Jew knows the plot line. Mm. Um, and more than that, um, every single Jew would have known you must identify with the younger son. As, you know, uh, we have Cain and Abel. We have uh, Esau uh, and Jacob. We have Ishmael and Isaac. Uh, we have Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And in each case, the younger son is the more desirable. But they also would have known that this is a parable and parables never go the way you want. And the astounding thing here, particularly when we compare the, the parable we call the prodigal son with the lost coin and the lost sheep, because they're set up all in the same chapter in Luke 15, is um, we recognize with the lost sheep that the shepherd had to have counted the sheep. That's how you know that one is missing out of 99. Mm -hmm. And the woman had to have counted her coins because that's how you can tell one is missing out of nine. But dad didn't count his son's. There's a huge party when the prodigal comes home with the fatted calf, which is just basically barbecue. And, <laughs> and the next line is, uh, his, the older brother was in the field and they heard the sound of music and dancing. In other words, they had enough time to call the band and the caterer and nobody called that older son because nobody knew he was the one who was lost, including dad. Huh. So yeah, the lostness goes a number of different directions, doesn't it? Absolutely. And if we simply read these things as about repentance and forgiveness, we're not going to find the challenge. Yeah, or 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 the challenge. Yeah, the, the repentance or forgiveness or having a, a theological set plan. Uh, it, it, there's sometimes you, uh, interpretations of the parable could lead one to think that every parable says the same thing: believe in right. Jesus, go to heaven. Uh, and, and certainly Jesus was a whole lot more interested in contemporary ethics. If the point of the Christian story is Jesus died to save us from our sins, then we can start the Gospels with the passion narrative. We don't need the Sermon on the Mount. We don't need the parables. We don't need Jesus teaching his disciples. So to ignore Jesus' own ethical teachings, uh, I think, sells the Gospel short and sells Jesus short. Amy Jill Levine is my guest on Religion for Life. Her new book is called Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. One of the parables that uh, is interesting that you point out in the book, uh, the Jesus Seminar giving it uh, a very red vote, meaning it really went back to uh, uh, or, or, or close to the voice print of the historical Jesus, was the parable of the woman who conceals leaven in flour. And, um, and I remember reading from uh, Bob Funk and others about how the Leaven was was would that have been a scandalous thing and unclean? But you really unravel that and say uh, reading too much into it by reading oh, the well, leaven in that way. Is that right? It, it's got nothing to do with purity laws, and hmm. it, it's so often uh, some contemporary scholars are convinced that there's negative purity law behind everything that Jesus ever said, and the most important thing Jesus did in his life was get rid of Jewish practice, and that's. It's bad history. Uh -huh. uh, it's it's incorrect for what the text says, which never mentioned purity here. Uh, and again, it's it's a mischaracterization of Judaism. Leaven is not impure. If leaven was impure, how could we possibly eat bread? Uh, uh, right. So uh, we already know that's that's an issue. But leaven could have a negative connotation. Jesus says, for example, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, 
so if, if you compare the kingdom of heaven to leaven, you know, that might get a rise out of the audience, as one might say. Uh, but I don't think it's an issue of purity. I think it's just a surprising image. What did it mean for her to that for that verb uh, crypto uh, or uh, hiding or concealing rather than just mixing the leaven and the loaf? What what does that mean to you? Right. Most translations actually do say there there was a woman who uh, took leaven and mixed it in. but the Greek term is actually a crypto from which you could hear words like cryptogram or cryptology. It really does mean hide, and that's the wrong verb. Uh, so now I've got the wrong implement, which is which is leaven. I wasn't expecting that. I've got the wrong verb, hide. And when I get to three measures of flour, three measures of flour is somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds. So now I've yeah. got too much flour. And making it even more interesting is the Gospel of Thomas, this non-canonical book, does not say the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It compares the kingdom of the Father to the woman who took leaven. So it foregrounds the woman's role. And at this point, we to continue the metaphor, we've got a lot to chew on. Uh, <laughs> and once we decide that it means one particular thing, again, we're not listening to the parable correctly. So could it mean that, you know, the meanest of domestic implements, I mean, something you just find in your pantry, that's that's got potential to be the kingdom of heaven. Or does it mean every once in a while you start the kingdom going and then you just leave it alone and it will work on its own without us fiddling or as we would use today, without us micromanaging? Or does it send us back to the scriptures of Israel where Abraham told his wife Sarah to take three measures of flour and bake cakes and that was the occasion where Abraham showed hospitality to three strangers and maybe that tells us maybe we ought to have more in the food bank. Or does it say make more than you could possibly need? Because when people who are hungry, they'll come. Or could it be, you know, the kingdom of heaven is present at the communal oven of a Galilean village where everybody has enough to eat. And it's not golden slippers and pearly gates. All of that is open from that one single parable. So the idea of parables, then, are, are really not to find the meaning or one meaning, but to really explore the, the, uh, the variety of possible meanings. And to explore the variety, and in each case to say, where is the challenge to me? Hmm. How does this parable indict me? How does this parable force me to be a better person than I am? And Jesus was about that, you understood. As a rabbi, he was challenging uh, stereotypes and, and prejudice in some ways, such as the, the parable that we call today the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah, and we miss that one as well, because today we typically look at the Samaritan as um, uh, the, the person against whom oppression reigns, uh, so the person without a green card or the person who's HIV positive. Um, or the member of the racial or ethnic or religious group that's the minority being oppressed by the majority. And we say eventually, they're nice people too. Well, that, that's a lovely lesson, but that doesn't nearly get us to the point of that parable. Because Samaritans were not the oppressed minority in a first century Jewish context. Uh, Samaritans were the enemy. Mm. Uh, so we might look at Jews and Samaritans as we might look at... Um, Oh, thinking about the war between the states here here in the U.S., uh, brothers fighting each other north and south. They have pretty much the same Bible. They worship the same God. They have pretty much the same rituals, and they're each claiming to be the appropriate heir of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are enemies. They hate each other. 
And that's the real challenge, isn't it? It's the people who are closest to us who have that division, like you, like you mentioned, we have churches dividing or people who are related in some way or things that are where we should be closer together, but when we're divided, that divisiveness is, uh, is almost the most violent. Right. And sometimes it gets to the point where we we might be even willing to say, you know, I'd rather die than acknowledge that somebody from that group could show humanity. Uh, Mm. I don't want I don't want to look at this person who I think is going to kill me and then suddenly realize he's the only person around who's going to save my life. And that's one heck of a challenge to be able to see. Yeah, we owe our life to the one uh, whom we've learned to hate all our lives. And whom we expected would hate us as well. It's yeah. mutual. Yeah. Amy Gillivine, author of Short Stories by Jesus, is my guest. Tell me a little bit uh, about the historical Jesus. Um, if you could paint a picture of, of, the, of the person who lived in that first century Galilee, wh- what was he like and what was his mission? Mm. Trying to determine who Jesus was becomes an impossibility because he would have been someone different to whom everyone, to, to whom whoever he encountered. Mm-hmm. Uh, to some people, he's a healer, and I really do think he healed people. Uh, to others, he's a, a teacher, a rabbi. Uh, to others, he's the, the center of a new family uh, when he talks about who are my mother and brothers and sisters. And it may well be that people who don't have familial connections found a new family in his gathering. To others, he's, uh, he's the Messiah. He's God's agent who is about to bring about the kingdom of God and bring an end to war and disease and poverty. He's the symbol of hope. Uh, to others, he's completely enigmatic, and folks aren't figuring out, well, why are you paying attention to this guy in the first place? I just don't get it. And to other people, he's a political danger coming into Jerusalem at Passover time when Pilate, the Roman governor, brings his soldiers into the city, and the place is a, a powder keg, and Jesus is the match that's about to set it off. So to limit Jesus to one particular role would not be good history any more than it would be good to limit any of us. I think he thought that he was commissioned by God to prepare his people for the inbreaking of the divine kingdom, which is much the same as what John the Baptist was doing. And we know that Jesus and John were initially associated. Um, I think he's trying to live a life that he thinks God would want us to live to be compassionate, to be in tune with our neighbor, uh, to call out people who are not living appropriately and saying you could do better. And what makes him particularly appealing is he brings in those folks that good, decent people might say, yeah, you're probably best not associating with them. The mm-hmm. sort of folks that your parents would say, I don't want you associating with those folks, you know. uh-huh. uh, the sinners and the tax collectors, which in our modern parlance would be the arms dealers and the insider traders and the drug pushers and the folks who destroy community. And Jesus' view was they're part of the community, too, and we need to figure out some way of getting them reintegrated. Yeah, the sinners. I, I was curious about those because oftentimes we've thought, well, well, the sinners were kind of the outcasts or the marginalized, but really the sinners were really the, 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 the filthy wealthy, weren't they? And, um, and rather nefarious characters. Pretty much so, which is why they keep holding banquets, and you know Jesus is always good for a, a dinner party. Um, <laughs> if you think about sinners as you know somebody who ate a piece of pork or uh-huh. you know yelled at the dog, um, we're not getting the 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 difficulty here, and we can see that in part because sinners are typically paired with tax collectors. 
And tax collectors are people who decided to go to work for the Roman occupation government and take money out of the hands of the Jewish people in order to support the Roman state. That's a violation of community trust, and that's what sinners do. You know, one of the things that I remember uh, growing up, growing up in church, and, and even in seminary, of, of still, and we were told not to, but it, it, it seemed to be that we still did it anyway, of taking Jesus over against his background and, and the background kind of his, of his Jewish religion of some case or another. And so it's always, if, you, if Jesus was, you know, really a, a proto-feminist and over against his background, which, you know, Jewish uh, religion was bad with women or those kinds of things. I, and um, your insights here really kind of throw that all out the window, that Jesus, <laughs> um, that, uh, that, that it's not good or true to make those kinds of contrasts. No, it's not only not good and not true, it leads to anti-Jewish attitudes mm-hmm. and it deforms the gospel. Um, I'm certainly not arguing that first century Judaism was some sort of egalitarian paradise, uh, but I'm not seeing Jesus as inventing feminism either. Uh, yeah. Women serve as his patrons, uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, Mary and Martha. Nobody thinks that's peculiar. Women have freedom of travel, independent funds, own their own homes, show up in synagogues and in the temple in Jerusalem, appear in public. And nobody finds any of that in the Gospels remarkable. Um, Women come to Jesus for healing. Well, sure, as women went to Elijah and Elisha in the scriptures of Israel, and women went to other rabbis. Uh, Jesus' behavior with women is not remarkable. Yeah, and uh, and so so he would be be a, a, a person of his time. Absolutely. And if he's not a person of his time, then he's not fully human. And if he's not fully human, we've just kind of messed up the Trinity. <laughs> right. Well, my guest, uh, Amy Gillivine, author of Short Stories by Jesus. Uh, just kind of a final question here. Of the parables of Jesus, what do you find, what of his, then, in your study, that would you say are two or three that are really the most challenging, that, that are really important for us uh, to, to wrestle with today? The ones that normally get to me are the parables of counting the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost child. Uh, as a teacher, I, you know, I know the ones who, who have gone lost, uh, the, the student who's flunking who needs extra help. And I know the ones who do really, really well, the A students. And I'm wondering, you know, have I counted them all? Have I paid attention to the, the B minus student who's working really hard? Mm. Um, as parents, we might pay more attention to the problem child. When does the the middle child who just does everything right, when does that child get counted? How do I make everybody feel as if he or she counts? Um, For the pearl of great price, how do I determine for myself what is of ultimate import? Because if I knew that, then I wouldn't have to sweat the small stuff. And I would know how better to to budget my time uh, and to focus my resources. Jesus is consistently challenging me to be a better person, to be a better parent, a better teacher, a better neighbor, and a better Jew. And if I can find those words so profound, so challenging, and I'm not a Christian, how much more so should those who claim to worship him as Lord and Savior take those parables to heart? 
Ah, absolutely. So well said. Uh, Amy Gillivine, my uh, guest on Religion for Life. Her book is Short Stories by Jesus, the Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. Uh, thank you, Professor Levine, for this book, and, and thank you for being with me today. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religionforlife.com is the website. Go there for all information about the program as well as links to podcasts. The show's location will be moving from East Tennessee uh, to Portland, Oregon, beginning in 2015. But the show will go on, so keep it here. for exciting news about uh, Religion for Life coming from the City of Roses. There will be a reception uh, to say for me, give me a chance to say goodbye to you on December 21st from noon to 3 at First Presbyterian Church, Elizabethton, Tennessee, December 21st. Hope to see you there. Be well.